Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey there, folks. Just wanted to jump in here before we get the show started proper and just pay tribute to our sponsor for this episode, which is, again, our friends over at Aero Video, and specifically their new Blu-ray release of Basket Case, the early 80s uh, 1982 to be exact, a uh, cult movie that, uh, you know, just reading about it on the back of the box here, it played in cinemas for like two and a half years and just made the rounds and truly uh, in an old school way became one of those cult classics. Um, so that is the director Frank Henenlotter's uh, feature debut. He's known for other movies as Frankenhooker and Brain Damage, sort of a culty director from that era, uh, but one that I have severely lacking in seeing any of his work. So I am looking forward to catching up with this one. I've heard Basket Case is quite good. Uh, co-host Joe Von Oppen um, actually caught this recently in L.A. Uh, I remember him talking about it off mic. So I hear good things. I'm looking forward to catching up with this culty, culty movie in a beautifully done Blu-ray restoration. Uh, put out by the Museum of Modern Art, no less. So uh, how's that for signing off on this movie? So again, we want to thank Aero Video for uh, helping us out, uh, putting out these awesome Blu-rays and making this episode of Adjust Your Tracking possible. So we thank them again. Now on to the show. Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Joe, it's uh, it's your birthday today, isn't it, buddy? It, it is, yeah. <laughs> Big... Sorry to just put you on blast, but it's your birthday and we celebrate that here. Thank you. Well, what are we going to do for your birthday since we're squeezing in a couple episodes this week? Uh, we're we're being, we're being very... Pro- Let's talk teenagers. <laughs> exactly. We're being very productive. Let's be the opposite of teenagers and... Uh, or we're being the opposite of teenagers by being productive. Let's let's chat about them. What what, what are we looking at uh, today? Well, I don't know. There are some pretty impressive contemporary teenagers who are you know like uh, storming ahead despite the uh, apathy and entropy of the world around them. So uh, <clears throat> here's to the productive children of today. But some uh, children depicted in fiction today is what we're going to talk about with two different films, Thoroughbreds opening uh, today on my birthday, March 9th and uh, flower opening next Friday, I believe in Los Angeles and New York. And um, there are, uh, they, they share some pretty striking, you know, similarities uh, following mostly young women who uh, some of which border on some, sociopathological you know spectrum of some sort and they uh they they make some devil's bargains in both movies and um both have you know completely you know unique to themselves atmospheres that they play in and um i guess yeah to just to to jump off uh i got to see thoroughbreds at afi fest back in november when i knew very little about it no trailer existed for it at the time 
and um, had just heard uh, another like a film programmer recommended it. And so I like jumped on it and then, you know, started to pull together the the sort of festival quotes about it. Um, some of the responses were like, it's like Heather's meets American psycho. And, you know, <laughs> that's intriguing. I like both movies, but um, that's there's also like an entirely unique tone to the movie that like it doesn't exist in the height heightened environment of either one of those films that it's ref that references it like there's something very naturalistic i think about thoroughbreds and about flower and um there the directions each film goes i think one is stronger than the other but um yeah i've i've been uh i've been baiting you with thoroughbreds i think since november i was like this is one of the best movies i've seen at afi fest and you're like great i can't see it till march asshole so (laughs) yeah you're just teasing me along here well it's been it has been a long wait as it can be sometimes with these kind of movies but um i i want to start there in so much as like i remember you bringing this up at the time and and it was on my radar i think i had seen a few images of the movie and maybe that was it like you said no trailer was really available but it seemed like a movie that I didn't really need to concern myself with all that much. And then you're like, no, 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 that's, that movie was good. Like uh, you, you had sort of uh, maybe not corrected because you were telling me the stuff you were seeing at the time, but I I might've just not even really thought much of the film. Mm-hmm. So to hear your recommendation, I'm like, all right, cool. That cause like on the surface uh, basic premise of it, I'm like, all right, could be interesting. A dark comedy, uh, we tend to go for the that that combo that you mentioned seems like something we would be interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and even with all that weight, that anticipation, I think there's a really good trailer that's out there now. And uh, we are opening this movie today at the theater I work at in Portland. And um, I've had this level of anticipation. It played at uh, the Portland International Film Festival last month. Uh, a few friends uh, that saw it really liked it there too. So I guess what I'm saying is been, there's been like a a subtle amount of buildup anticipation for this movie, but kind of the long and short of it for me is that like it most mostly like lived up to that uh, just beyond friends saying it's good friends like you that I trust uh, saying it's good. It's worth seeing. And, but the thing that um, really surprised me with it and that I want to use to compare to flower, the, the other movie you mentioned that we're talking about, cause the movies do, speak to each other. They sort of bounce similar ideas, thematic uh, uh, interest off each other mm-hmm. is just the filmmaking style. Like you, you did say thoroughbreds is naturalistic and I think you're right in some respects, but there's also a very hyper controlled, uh, forgive me for going to this well again, but like almost Kubrickian level of like control with the frame. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah, like the filmmaking, the visuals, the use of sound. This is just something I think you and I are going to continue to talk about in movies because I think it's a big part of what makes a theatrical experience so exciting is if it's turned up loud enough and you really get to see even a movie like Thoroughbreds that has that's a small budgeted film, but it's like the cheapest special effect you can use on a film like this is makes it seem more heightened, more cinematic, more immersive. The sound in Thoroughbreds is really impressive and... Uh, I, I so I really took to that stuff to it. Uh, it is a movie that fully commits to its, I would say, pretty much purely nihilistic ideals. Maybe it's not ideals, but uh, nihilistic themes that it wants to approach. Um, 
And again, bouncing that off of Flower, which is a movie I just don't know how much we're going to have to talk about on Mike because it's just so much. I guess Flower is more of an example of the frustrating, <laughs> typical assembly line indie version of this kind of movie that we yeah. get more often, whereas Thoroughbreds really stands out. It would have anyway, but having something so directly to compare it to points out that Thoroughbreds is really made by people that have a perspective, a vision, and yep. they want to make cinema. So I, I'm, I really was into that. Well, it's, I only um, say that it's naturalistic in comparison to the examples given by the critics saying it's like Heather's meets American psycho. Like those just feel right, so right. heightened and such like byproducts of like heavily music video influenced eras. And I love right. both films, but like this has, like a something that's just a little more like grounded, I feel like. And um, you, I mean, you mentioned the f- the filmmaker who the writer and director. It's the same person, Corey Finley, and mm-hmm. he, um, you know, he wants to make an immersive experience that only like cinema can kind of provide. But he comes from a background of playwriting, and like you can feel that, like even uh-huh. though the the film is so like so tight in terms of like it's framing in terms of its atmosphere, like the, the dialogue and how, like how just like airtight the dialogue is and how tense the exchanges are and how hilarious they become and how you hang on every word. And there's such an economy to like, to, to the dialogue, like you, you feel like the importance of words, like, you know, for this writer and uh, like each exchange, you know, it starts off basically as an entry point to a developed friendship between a tutor and the two T um, Lily uh, played by Anya Taylor joy is tutoring Olivia cook's character, Amanda and Amanda is um, you find out that she's, she's a little spectrumy. She's just, she admits to not having any real emotions and she feels kind of at odds with like the feeling world around her. So she's trying to replicate what, you know, feeling people are emoting. And so like, she's just like an interesting vessel to like enter into a story with. And there's something kind of like weirdly Hitchcock about like their dynamic, the way they strike up and how eventually this leads to a plot to kill Lily's father. Who's like this, you know, domineering, rich, awful, you know, white privilege embodiment human being. (laughs) And, uh, and so like it's, it starts this kind of like domino effect of like Hitchcock black comedy. And we, we find a a low life that they try to enlist played by uh, like a heartbreakingly good Anton Yelchin. It's like one of his last performances, if not his last performance. And when I saw it in November, every scene, like he's just so, like he's just so like disarming and like wonderful as like a sort of befuddled, charming scumbag that like, <laughs> every, like people would just laugh and then you would feel them be like, <laughs> Oh, cause they just like, it would sink in again and again, like what a gift he was and what in his presence, you know, that like he was just such a unique, you know, um, presence on screen and like, he was it, just getting started too, you know? Yeah. And like, this is, this was such a like, you know, just to see his capabilities in terms of like having a relatively small role in a film and just like lighting up the screen every time he shows up, you know, mm. it's like, like Brad Pitt and true romance, like the way he just like, 
he's a capable leading man, but he also can just take these showy character roles and just really lean into them. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a movie that like really, um, just like moment to moment had this like crackling effect of like just being alive and like hanging on every word and every sort of nuanced exchange between the two characters as they read each other and try to figure each other out. Cause you know, you have the tutor character who's like, you know, really poised and postured. And then you have someone who's really trying to emulate, you know, almost an alien like emulation of human beings and how they like enter into this like bargain with each other that starts to like unravel over the course of the film. And it's like, it's hilarious. And it's like, you know, also sort of like weirdly moving in parts. And I think that like it's choice to not be sort of um, heightened and detached. Like it's able to sort of capture, um, I don't know how familiar you are. I, mean, I know, you know, Brett Easton Ellis as like a critic, but as mm-hmm. like, you know, an actual writer, it's able to sort of pinpoint his tone in a way that straight up adaptations of him never really have. Oh, interesting. Cause like, I think rules of attraction is one of, you know, his better adaptations, American psycho too, but there, there is a sort of sense of like, there's something so heightened and something so exaggerated about both of them, even though they, they sort of like, they hit these emotional registers that I think are ultimately make them effective and memorable. There's still, there's like a, a realistic melancholy to all of his novels that like, an adaptation like less than zero is just so maudlin and so melodramatic that it's just like, it becomes like a moralistic tale and you lose all the black humor of the, Mm. of the film. Whereas like the other adaptations are so just blackly humorous that you kind of lose the morose kind of heartache of the movies. And so like, I feel like this film and this script like really elicits those things while, you know, obviously not being derivative of Brady Snellis at all. Like this is like, uh, Corey Finley has a voice all his own. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what else he does after this. No, no doubt. doubt. I mean, he's, he's one of those directors. You see this movie and you know, like he knows like what he wants to do. He knows how to tell the story the best way. What what way to use the camera to effectively punctuate the the dialogue mm-hmm. and and as you pointed out the the leads are great. The whole cast of this movie. I there are a few things that uh I might just end up repeating as we go on and on with this podcast. Not this one, but just doing this show is like things I appreciate more and more as I watch more movies as I get older is like sound design, things like that that I recognize more casting even in little roles and mm-hmm. thoroughbreds. I would even compliment flower in this regard because casting is quite strong in that movie actually too yeah uh uh, but it can only take it so far thoroughbreds has really strong casting and also seems to have empathy for a bunch of characters that i think most storytellers just don't Mm -hmm. and i think it's easier to just play the subversion game with with uh people in this realm and we're talking like uh most of the milieu of thoroughbreds is like rich people rich white people basically right um but it is it's where the satire comes in is so strong helped by the casting everybody seems to be on the same page because and then but it's so there's like this one tone that has to stay true through the movie for any film it has to sort of gel together right like and fit together and thoroughbreds does that but also has 
all these different characters that aren't in the literal like uh, rich bubble world that it exists in. They have to they want to enter in. And that speaks to like Anton Yelchin's character. Like he has a purpose to the story, but the way he's used surprised me. And mm. there are a lot of things in the storytelling that take turns where I was like, oh, I didn't think that that's what would happen. And I think another uh, major point to like punctuate about Thoroughbreds in that regard is the trailers for me are good, but they do make it look probably easier to sell the movie this way, but they make it look like, oh, it's going to be fuck that guy. We're going to kill him. It's it's the young girls are going to get back at this asshole guy. It is much, maybe not a lot murkier than that, but it is murkier than that. And where it goes is not so much a rah-rah. In fact, it's the opposite of like, yeah, you got it. It's actually like finds a very troubling place to end on. And I wonder if that also um, connects to the Brett Easton Ellis sort of nihilistic vibe in his stories. Like I admit, I have not actually really read I've read parts of American Psycho, but I, I, I've, I just haven't read one of his books. But that feels in keeping with the spirit of Brett Easton Ellis a lot, too. Yeah, I think that there's there's a concentration on uh, privilege in a lot of those books that, like, obviously this this story in Thoroughbreds, like, investigates pretty thoroughly and how there's, like, you know, even at the most provided for, there's something, there's a deficit at work and there's something kind of, like, rotting at the core of, like, most most privilege, you know, and like, and so investigating that rot and that, like that sort of uh sense of like dysfunction is something that like is a great place for like comedy, but it also is like a great place for just like the sort of sinking American dream and like the, the malaise of that. And I think like, yeah, the, the plot of sort of uh doing away with the father character played by Paul Sparks, who's great from boardwalk empire. Right. Yeah. And he's also in the night of the, the other HBO show. He's he's great in that. He's just, he's, he's like a great, you know, character actor. He's it's, it's a relief to see him pop up here and there. And he's a, he's a beautiful asshole in this. Um, yeah, yeah. Really really plays it. It's another thing about this movie is how, um, how effectively and um, like swiftly it condenses, it gets things across. He's an asshole, but it's not short-sighted. It like, it just does it. It uses, it's, it, it's perfect movie storytelling. It condenses it down. So you, you get a series of sequences with him, you know, in the early to middle of the movie, we're like, God, he is a pill. He is awful. He's, but yet I think it, it, it's that right balance of naturalism and heightened filmmaking that like, he's not a heightened asshole. I, I don't know about you. I know guys like that guy. And they're, they're like, it's about control. Like everything is about what they can control. And then you get into probably like, there's some weird issues they have with women most likely. Mm-hmm. So this guy is set up to be really awful. He is a douchebag. I think at one point, uh, the Olivia cook character says, yeah, he's a cock. Is there any new news? Like we know, we knew that about him already. Um, and when that line is uttered, it's when the movie starts to take another turn where it's like, Oh, this is getting murkier than I expected. And I really, really appreciated that. Cause I think, um, several of the mistakes in the narrative where flower goes sort of speak to where thoroughbreds could have so easily spun off the wheels, you know, and just done something like, so misguided yet it is honed and stays true to it's it really again uh, i feel like thoroughbreds just commits and i respect that so much um 
even while I was like kind of sh- like shocked where I was like, oh, okay, this is going to get a little bit um, messier, a little more layered than I would have expected. Uh, but uh, again, I just keep going back to the filmmaking and the casting and all those elements that work so well to like get that across. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, there's a lot to, it's, it's, we're in a weird era where like having to reconcile, you know, uh, distributors choices of how they market something, you know, in, in any attempt to get an audience, like with the actual product itself, like, I don't think the trailers are like super misleading the way like last week's Fox trots, uh, (laughs) <laughs> you know, like they're they're a campaign for making a, a sort of charming world cinema movie. It's just like, uh, no, this is like cold and harsh and like occasionally humorous, but it's like definitely not as like it's not the full Monty. I don't know what the fuck you guys are trying to pitch right now. <laughs> but um yeah, I think that like there's there's like a clip to the trailer that isn't dishonest, but like there is a, a kind of like emotional ambiguity in the movie that's like that sort of gets at that kind of heartache and at that, that darkness that like, isn't a sort of quippy quick clipping, you know, like comedy the way like the trailer would have you believe like there's, it's just, there's so much more than that. Like it's a very funny movie. Like it's fucking hilarious at times, but it also like it, the, the place it lands in is like kind of quietly devastating, you know, like, yeah. Oh yeah. And uh, it's just like an interesting invested, like for a script that's so clean in terms of like the exchanges being sort of like beautifully poetic, there is a a lingering sense of dimension to each character, you know, at at least amongst the leads um, that like, I really like, it really affected me. And like seeing the two, the two leads, especially uh, Olivia Cook and Anya Taylor-Joy, like I just knew uh, we know Anya Taylor Joy from uh, The Witch, from Split, stuff like that. I was like, she's mm-hmm. going to be huge. And then, like, as I was like thinking about them again, getting closer to discussing the film, I was like, yeah, Olivia Cook's going to be huge too. And then I like looked at a poster, like almost right then and there for Ready Player One. I was like, that's her. She's wow, oh, she's in that movie. Cool. They already like so game recognized game. They knew that you know she was like for a movie that like I think focus is definitely hoping that this is going to be a big movie but like you know in this climate it's anyone's guess like who the fuck knows what's going to do well and what isn't but uh it it feels like they're it's this year's raw release you know they released raw at about the same time last year yeah um, and we got we got that movie at my theater too so they seem to think we want the like edgy teen movies or whatever but right. um hey they're they're good so i'm glad we're showing them but uh yeah you know, raw raw struggled to find an audience as we've talked about before too so yeah but it's it, it, i think that like the film industry even though like there may not even though they're they're scared money wise to invest in sort of like un you know projects that are like less clear in terms of their intention they haven't a. Um, uh, ambiguity to them they have like an artistic bent to them so it's like they may get more and more apprehensive about that but they can acknowledge that it's like well these two leads are fucking great and so like let's put them in everything and so it's just like you know you're like oh good they they get bigger and bigger opportunities in movies that are less and less interesting to me but it's like they all come from this <laughs> sort of like big bang of like the movies that are interesting and then they all start to get dispersed into projects that get less and less interesting it doesn't need to be this depressing um 
Totally. Because here's something that I don't find depressing, and, <clears throat> and it has to do with Anya Taylor-Joy, but Olivia Cook as well. But Anya Taylor-Joy has one of these things that uh, I just love when you discover one of these actors. She has a unique face. Nobody yeah. looks like her. No. And, and if you think about the structure of her face, because the movie does give you time to sort of look at that the way it's framed. And she's often in the front of the frame sometimes where you can really take this in is like, she has a very long slender face. It's very appropriate for the world we're in where it's like rich people that own horses and the movies called thoroughbreds and has this idea of horses and horse imagery. There's this like really beautiful, almost Wes Anderson uh, like shot where like she's in the front while Olivia cook plays on a giant chessboard and keeps moving the, uh, what are the horse pieces in chess? Are those the pawns? Uh, mm-hmm. Whatever they are. I don't, I don't know chess. I'm an idiot. But she's moving that, and it's like being moved in the frame to like match up to uh, Anya Taylor-Joy's face. There's this just very well-specifically crafted things like that that make you appreciate like, oh, Anya Taylor-Joy is a great actor, but also like her face just fits this world. And then Olivia Cook um, has a face that like, tells you so much about like it, it, there's like that absence of feeling that the character has where she she yeah. is she's an admitted sociopath where like uh or potentially even worse uh where there's just nothing there and she is so good at like wiping any emotion from her face and the movie uses that for like joke punctuation uh really strongly um but it also makes me think of another like idea at play in thoroughbreds that I thought was really interesting. It's a little more under the surface, but it's there in almost every scene is just, okay. So it's set, it's set in today. Uh, and it's, it's, a uh, rich, a rich, uh, like upper class, uh, world for the most part, but also, uh, it occurs in flower, which is more of a sort of lower middle class sort of world. The characters inhabit. Yeah. But just this idea of youth with, so we all have access to everything right now, information, information overload. And with that comes like a sort of almost like light speed forward ahead where like teens know way more. Now kids know so much more now than even probably you and I did when we were that age, you know, just all that shit, horrible, messed up, crazy, uh, super like intense stuff, anything is all available. So like, what are the potential repercussions of that? And, um, flower again, sort of disappoints with where it goes with that, but thoroughbreds like uses it as a really strong buttoning, um, climactic moment where, where you said, like you said, like the movie goes to a really kind of fucked up place in the end, which I actually thought was pretty much a perfect ending for it. Uh, I really appreciated it, but the way it handles it. And part of it is uh, the use of this letter being read by a character in voiceover that comments on like, um, there's some, there's a line about someday everyone will have people to pick up after them. So all they can do is stare at their phones. Cause that's all they have time. Like they'll have more time to stare at their phones and then they'll forget to eat and they'll forget to do this. And then they'll just humanity will burn up and, or sort of just shrivel and die. I thought was like, fuck that's dark, but this movie, that's this movie's viewpoint. And they knew that everybody involved. And they, uh, I really appreciated that, but I think it comes back to like, kids just have all the knowledge now or so much knowledge that like, they're not ready to process all that. So you get these fucked up crazy results that can be played with in a, in a, in a story like this. Well, I think you get uh, just as like uh, the last possible defense mechanism is a profound numbness. And I think that's what uh, 
that's what um, Olivia Cook's character sort of is, is like this, like this numbness and this inability to access feeling versus, you know, Lily's character who comes from a intense place of privilege and she has everything for her, like essentially, and she, she's postured perfectly, but like at her core is something like kind of menacing and the, you know, like, Amanda played by Olivia cook. Like she, she has the potential to act out that menace. And so they're a perfect kind of like Hitchcock duality, but for a very contemporary moment, you know, cause like we are at this place where, you know, we're on the precipice of like all these horrible things and like children are just staring down consequences of all these things that are outside of their control. So what, what choice do they have, but to numb out, <clears throat> And to sort of wall off and become these like weird, you know, like that's the danger is that you fall down this socio sociopathological like detachment. And like, I think that as an entry point to two characters working off each other is just like, it's so beautiful to see that interplay and to hear it like, you know, talked through like the, you know, another focus movie came out a few months ago, your favorite of last year, like just watching two people. Yeah. And that power struggle of phantom thread and like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and just like this, the, like, you know, like dialogue doesn't have to be aggressively showy and call attention to itself in this sort of like snarky, snappy way, the way like Tarantino does necessarily not to, you know, mm-hmm. dog on his dialogue, but like, you know, there, there can be a distinct pleasure of watching like ideas bounce around between two people and between like, and just watch power dynamics establish and like, you know, emotions start to rise and like just that negotiation between characters that like Hitchcock was so good at establishing those dynamics, you know, even if it feels dated and distant at this point, like there, there is a sort of like the, you know, he, he did establish that like dark power dynamic, like pretty well between like two, two, two or more people. Right. Phantom Thread is a great example. I I honestly hadn't thought of it, but that's what PTA has been doing lately is like coming up with these stories and then sort of he comes up with the world and the era he wants it to exist in. And then he seems to sort of like try to fit it in with characters who are going to be a set of characters that will push this story, that will push it where it needs to go or push it in interesting directions. You have to like find the right set of personalities to sort of go against each other. And Thoroughbreds is that from the opening scene. It's almost like a uh, the expert like the tete-a-tete where they're just back and forth they're sort of sizing each other up but they're these hyper smart kids mm-hmm. uh, that that one comes from a little more privilege or a lot more privilege than the other um yeah man there's a lot of fun sort of I, that's where I, he, you saying that uh the director Corey finley he was a playwright or he, he is a playwright as well that yeah that that makes a lot of sense because it's that focus on um dialogue but it's tightened up and it's honed so it's most effective to punctuate each point and mm-hmm. and it is it's it's not showy dialogue it's not the kind that gets up for awards or that gets attention um the reason people have copied Tarantino's dialogue for decades is because it's flashy like you said and mm-hmm. it can get tiresome when you see that um this is this is flashy in a much more subtle way that that uh is probably best for this story um, another, another just thing I deeply appreciated about thoroughbreds and it has to do with the visual sort of grammar again. Uh, and to, to make this point, I'm going to just 
tangent a little bit here. I watched Get Out recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, uh, fuck me, that movie is so great. Uh, it had been about since last year since I saw it in theaters. Uh, watched it with my girlfriend who had not seen it. She's horror. not a horror movie fan, and she loved it, which mm-hmm. is great. Um, HBO is showing that movie, and HBO has been doing this with a lot of of their movies that they stream. They are showing what is called the airplane version. So get out is the aspect ratio. The frame is supposed to be widescreen, supposed to be two, three, five. I'm not going to try to get too geeky here, but uh, two, three, five or two, three, eight. It's like that widescreen letterboxed look in HBO. They, they, they've reformatted that movie and a lot of other ones to 16 by nine. So it fits your widescreen. So it fits your TV, you know? Uh huh. And um, the, the, it bums me out because Get Out is shot specifically with that widescreen. Jordan Peele used every inch of the frame to to make it effective. He knew what he was doing. Um, and that's disappointing to see that. Uh, so my point with Thoroughbreds is that it is another movie that very much uses the scope 235 widescreen aspect ratio so effectively. Like um, a lot of filmmakers that do choose that aspect ratio these days, though, it's actually they sort of waste it. I think it's just chosen sometimes almost like willy nilly, like they don't think about it. I could tell with Thoroughbreds that Corey Finley knew exactly him and his DP what they wanted to do with that extra wide frame because they make use of it. And just moments come to mind that I really, really admired in this movie were just little blips in it that so effectively like um used made comedy out of like horror imagery and horror editing. Mm -hmm. So I think of uh, early in the beginning of the movie, as we were talking about when uh, Olivia cook and Anna Taylor joy are sort of sizing each other up. Uh, Olivia cook gets hungry. So they like go into the kitchen. She eats some snacks. Uh, The scene is building many things about their characters really effectively. It shows that Anna Taylor joy just expects people to clean up after her. Cause she says, "Ah, just leave it there. Let's go. And within that, there's like a, really quick two second cut outside the hallway where you see the maid just cross the hallway to pick it up like instantly. And that got one of my biggest laughs from the movie because it just comes out of nowhere. And that's the sort of thing that would be the, the sort of cat jumping out of the closet moment in a horror movie. But it was really, really effective because it, it paints this, 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 this young woman's world so effectively and it does it with comedy and using horror imagery. That's a really exciting mix of things going on. And it, it kind of sucked me into this movie like right away. And I think that's the, the secret. That's a must for something like Thoroughbreds because it is a dark movie. It is nihilistic, but it is entertaining and it sucked me in right away. Uh, I just appreciated that visual, that use of the frame that I think so many young filmmakers don't really make use of. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was really impressed by that. Well, it's 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 heartening to see, you know, somebody who does come from a theater background translate so effectively to, you know, the language of cinema cuz it's like when you when you're thinking about a stage picture, the picture doesn't change when you're looking at an actual stage, you know, like the scenery could right. change, you know, in between s- scenes and whatnot, but you're not having cuts the way you can with a film. So like he understands the importance of like having everything in the frame matter. And having everything be significant and especially in the sort of like cold, austere homes of like super rich people, you know, where like uh, just everything's sort of meticulously designed and there's something inhumanly museum like about it. And so like, like everything is sort of like 
perfectly poised and worked out so that like things can surprise you inside of the frame eventually once everything's sort of like meticulously mapped, you know? And like, I just think that that's the perfect kind of transition from theater to what's film now. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for him. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Me too. I, uh, maybe just like in closing, I, I just wanted to say a little bit more about Anton Yelchin as well, because uh, I think this is his last performance. Is this the last yeah. last thing that he filmed before passing away? Yeah. Um, I'm definitely going to have to use my, my green room audio drop for the top of this podcast with, with him and Jeremy Saulnier. Actually, I got to interview him actually a few months before he died, uh, a couple years ago. And, uh, I guess just, you know, RIP Anton Yelchin where I just was immediately when he pops up in this movie, I was like, ah, I miss him, man. And he's not even like one of my favorite actors. I just, have, he's reliable and he could do what you said at the early in the show is like, he could do these little parts, but lead a movie. He was, he was just getting started, but I just want to appreciate what he does in this movie. Cause he kind of is Brad Pitt and true romance in this movie, mm-hmm. but I love that. Like he is just not right for this world. He just, just like Brad Pitt and true romance. It's like, Oh honey, you're just like, you're, you're, you're just so I, so I mentioned how the, uh, the stepfather character, I, I feel like I know guys like that. Mm-hmm. I also, I don't know about you, but I definitely have met dudes like the Anton Yelchin character in this movie where he starts spouting off lines. He's sort of a, a drug dealer. Like he's just like a low level drug dealer. It's kind of pathetic. Um, uh, there are elements of his character that actually sort of seep into a lot of what happens in flower as well. It's where the movies sort of speak to each other uh, more. Uh, but Yelchin is just like when he gives speeches about like, I'm going to be rich, give me five, 10 years and I'll just be owned. Like the way he talks, he is that embodiment of what's left of the American dream now. Like everybody that just grows up thinking they can be rich too. And that's the Anton Yelchin character. Like you just see that sadness, you know, and it's like, there's nowhere left for you to go, dude. You're a fuck up and you're going to just be doing dishes at an old folks home. Like what, you know, like there, the movie makes fun of him, but he so commits and finds actual dimensions to this person that I really loved where they went with his character. Cause I kind of was worried that like, he's a buffoon, but like in a Coen brothers movie, that character would be like dispatched of, I think in a really mm-hmm. mean way. And I'm not knocking on the Coens. It's what I love about them. But I guess I really appreciated that it, this movie surprised me with him too. Like what happens with him is really like, it felt just right. Even though it's still very true to that sad sort of, pathetic character but Yelchin brings it to life and there's just something about his face man he just looks like this guy he just is that guy and mm-hmm. uh yeah he, he'll he be missed man he he was just getting started and I, I really appreciated him in Thoroughbreds as well so yeah well you'll be glad to know it, it got uh, a huge uh ovation when his name appeared in the credits at the end at the the screening I saw so Nice. Well, I was the in memoriam in memory of Anton Yelchin. Was that I think it's dedicated to him? Yeah, right. It is. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So that's 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 appropriate and very nice. And I think it's a nice thing for him to go out on to just remind you of like how how awesome he was. Um, But, you know, Green Room is another one, too, man. He he goes through the gauntlet in that movie and he's fucking great in it. So uh, anytime any anytime's a good time to remind people to see Green Room, I suppose. So it's true. How'd you find me? Asked around. That is so fucking unprofessional. You got a gun? 
None of your fucking business. Multiple guns? Multiple guns? No. What am I, fucking Rambo? Yes, I have a gun. Good. Why good? Because then Lily has a business proposition for you. If we were going to do this, we would both need to be far away with airtight alibis. Yeah, creepy friend. I know. I'm Jeremy Sonier, writer-director of Green Room. I'm Anton Yelchin. I'm one of the actors in it. You're listening to Adjust Your Tracking. Tracking podcast yeah well uh do you want to say anything separately about flower i mean i've kind of inter- i keep bringing it up randomly but um yeah you know, i mean anything flower we traffics in a, a similar terrain and uh it's a uh, directed by max winkler uh the Fonz's son uh oh yeah i didn't know that. i didn't know that yeah <laughs> And it's uh, co-written by him and Matt Spicer, who uh, wrote and directed Ingrid Goes West, one of my favorites of last year. And it it follows um, uh, the character of Erica. I don't know where the title of the movie necessarily comes from, but that's okay. Um, uh, I just took it as like, you know, deflowering, you know, that whole sure, idea. Sure, yeah, flower. It's, it's like a pretty, you know, tired metaphor for youth, but that's okay. So, um... So Erica's character is uh, she she's in high school and goes about uh, blackmailing kind of predatory men um, by, you know, getting them to uh, act, you know, engage in sexual activity with her and then like blackmail them through photographic evidence. And so it's like the movies that sounds sinister. Uh, out the gate you're just like oh jesus that's lurid that sounds horrifying but like the movie's tone is very flippant and very like darkly comedic right off the bat it's like clear what the tone of the movie is you think um and i think this is where like the strengths of the movie aren't you know uh they're not entirely intact the way they are with something as assured as thoroughbreds is is that like even though the tone is unpredictable. I don't know that that's a mark of ingenuity. I think it's a mark of like uncertainty with this movie. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah. you get, you get dicey characters, like a kind of anti-hero where, um, you know, the character of Erica played by Zoe Dutch. Is that right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> who's great. And like her mother is played by Catherine Hahn, who, you know, like she plays like a kind of, well-meaning kind of shit talking working class mother who probably had her daughter when she was too young. And like, it's, it's a role I haven't really seen Catherine Hahn play and I love her. And I think that she's great in it. And she's got a new husband played by Tim Heidecker who like is, is going on to just become like a super interesting character actor, you know, like he's a strong anti comedy like voice, but like he's, you know, actually becoming a very nuanced performer in his own right. And so there's there's a whole household dynamic established between them and the impending arrival of uh, her stepbrother, Tim Heidecker's son, who's now getting out of rehab. So it's like this family dynamic, which that's you were saying off mic, like there's a bunch of different movies that maybe could have been successful if they just stuck to like their guns. 
that's a movie in itself. Like whether or not that would be successful, like who knows, but like, here's a family dynamic. There's this fucked up daughter who like, doesn't seem to wear that she's fucked up. She wears it as like a source of like strength and pride that she's like, you know, sexually reckless. And like, that was a sort of interesting entry point. Um, but it, it doesn't feel like it's really, Tease word like responsible seems kind of moralizing and kind of gross, but like I don't really know if the movie has enough like of a foothold in anything that it's trying to say to reasonably handle the sort of weird directions the characters go in. Yeah, it's I think it requires a deft hand to be able to do that. Yeah, and it's just like. I understand the the kind of the the high wire act and this the sort of the the pitch of being like, well, this is a this is like a an edgy movie about these like you know sexually reckless teenagers who blackmail people and like all of a sudden they're in over their heads when they try to blackmail you know one guy and things turn sort of darkly upended and it's like I understand that as like a a, a kind of like lurid pitch where you're just like oh that could be fucked up you know but it's like you have to pull through you can't just like (laughs) nosedive into the cd and the sort of like gnarly and then not sort of like pull through in some regard and like you you were also saying off mic that the movie just throws everything at the wall i think in the last probably fourth of the movie and it doesn't i don't think it ultimately knows what it wants to say and the credit that the movie has earned through the performances, which are like strong um, and through just the kind of overall look and feel of the movie. It's just, it's not enough to make these hairpin turns. The movie attempts to take like pay off ultimately, unfortunately it shows how hard it is to make like a poly genre movie, a genre mashup or something where you're going to switch tones so rapidly. It takes a really strong directorial hand and it makes me appreciate that stuff even more. Um, it, it had just occurred to me as you were talking who, what I remember Zoe Dutch from, um, cause she is really great in this movie and it's a great like starring role for her, despite the, the movie's flaws that we're bringing up. It's like, I rem- it was everybody wants some, she's the, the sort of yeah. one like <laughs> female that gets like prominent, uh, a part in that movie. And she was really, uh, I remember her getting my attention in that movie as well. Um, but I think, gosh, there's something weird about the end of flower where like at the end, I was like, there are a certain amount of consequences to what happens where it goes, mm-hmm. but it just is so bizarre in the way it handles them and just seems so out of, it's like surreal in this. It's just surrealistically stupid to me where I'm like, what is happening in this movie? And I was almost longing for the days of like the mid nineties. Like, uh, like I wanted like the kids effect, the movie kids. I'm like, where's the consequences here? Like, I, like right. I love that film. It's not like I'm begging for more like indie cinema like that of the nineties, where it was all about like, you're going to die if you have sex. And that was so pervasive in movies like that, where it's yeah. just like this hype, this like the terror effect of it. But my God, did they go swing so far in the other direction in this movie that it's just like no consequences, nothing matters. You'll be okay in the end. And, uh, another thing off mic I had referred to it as is it reminded me of where like Baby Driver went in the end, where it's just like nothing really matters, 
but at least that movie was like in a heightened genre, like very clearly a heightened genre movie. Flower is supposed to be like basically neorealism <laughs> for the most part, like comedy coming of age, but it's like, it's supposed to exist in a real world. And it just, it, it the places it goes, man, we're just, Oh, it's like forehead slapping. So, and yeah, it's too bad. Cause it's like, we, yeah, go ahead. The, it, it, you mentioned kids, but like uh, it reminded me of like a kinder, gentler bully. Cause it's like, it's got that kind of like, kids with too much time on their hands, like slipping into a plot that's like, you know, gets them in over their heads faster than they think. But it definitely doesn't have the punishing qualities that bully had. Cause for one, that was a true story more or less. And like this movie, just like when you f- like, there's a scene between, um, Catherine Hahn and, um, Emily Dutch where like the mom just has had enough and she like leans into her and they have like a pretty, pretty charming dynamic of like seeming more like sisters than they do mother daughter. And she really mm-hmm. just like, you know, lays into her and you like watching um, the character of Erica's like watching her performance as that character in that moment, taking in her mom, like just like, you know, screaming at her. It's genuine and it's heartfelt and it's like devastating in its own way. And that's where the movie, like there's, there's a really, it's just a profound moment that like then on the whim of, I don't know what, like of making the movie more memorable or like taking, (laughs) taking a risk of just like veering then into like almost like caper landscape of them, like going on the run together, like the character of, uh, of Erica and her stepbrother, like, you know, trying to make, make a run for the border shouts out to Taco Bell. And like, (laughs) And so like, it's just like, it doesn't as, as much as like, it's sometimes like exhilarating to have a drastic change in tone or a change in direction, the way the movie can really like upend your expectations. Like this just felt like it didn't know where its own strengths were at times. And like ultimately leading into, you know, questionably um, just unconvincing plot twists where you're just like, what I don't know. Like I don't buy like the emotional believability of certain scenes were then like forsaken for like unbelievable scenes. And you were right that like Baby Driver at least had that sense of stylistic detachment where it could take these whims and be like, yeah, sure. It's like it's existing in this kind of like this heightened realm of like you know ultra music video land. You know, kind of what we're talking about with like Heather's and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate just because like there's, there's a, there's a lot to like in flower. There's like really strong performances. There's, you know, like the, the environment, the same way that I think like brick, when we were talking about on a recent uh, installment of hold up the, that landscape that it shoots in, in orange County, there's something similarly kind of sunburnt and trashy about like Palmdale, which is I think where it's being shot at in, in flower. And like, you know, that sense of environment and atmosphere is intact in this movie. It just doesn't really know where its strengths are. There's another green room collection co- connection to this movie. It's the, the cop character in uh, flower. Did right. you recognize him from green room? Yeah. Yeah. Eric Edelstein is his name. He's the guy that they like, carve up his belly in green room. <laughs> He's like the neo-Nazi that they first have to deal with in that mm-hmm. movie. Uh, 
Yeah, green room connections abound, I guess, on this episode. Um, not that I was spending a good amount of time on the internet while we were talking, but do you know who Emily Dutch's parents are? No. Leah so Thompson and Howard Dutch, like the, the director of Pretty in Pink and Leah Thompson is the mom in Back to the Future. Yeah. Oh, shit, man. Yeah. Oh, weird. So there's Hollywood royalty royalty everywhere in this episode, I guess. That's true. Who was yeah. the other person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody. Crazy. Yep. <laughs> I'm glad you were you were on the internet while I was talking, I'm sure. I'm sure it's plenty of that. Go- that never happened. Say the wrong name, you know, and I do the same thing. I would that's why I looked up that guy, Eric Edelstein's name cuz I was like, I don't know that actor, but I recognize that guy from yeah. Green Room. So uh, he was also in Twin Peaks: The Return, playing a cop in that movie or show. What a cop um, that guy is! <laughs> All right, well, what do you say? Should we should we wrap this one up? Yeah. Sounds All good. right. Well, bef- before we do, I'm gonna just say it again because I've seen the movie now. Uh, go see this Russian film, Loveless. Uh, it's probably not gonna be one that immediately screams, "I have to run to the cinema to see this." But um, I talked about this movie on the last few episodes in anticipation. It's from one of my favorite uh, working filmmakers today. I'm going to murder his name, but Andre Zivyaginstev. He made a movie called The Return, Elena, uh, uh, another movie called Leviathan, although there are several films called Leviathan out there in the world. True. He made the Russian one. <laughs> um and this is his latest film, and I, there are actually some similarities to the movies we talked about today in that it is a movie in some regards that examines an upper-class milieu, uh, miserable people in that upper class. Um, but it is, like all of Ziv against us films, um, there are genre elements in there. He just doesn't make pure genre movies. So, like, Loveless plays like a thriller but it's a thriller about just domestic misery. It's a thriller about divorce and then the consequences that can come from that when there's a child involved in that divorce. And uh, the story is about a boy, the boy from these two parents that are getting divorced just runs away and they are trying to find him. And uh, it is bleak. It is unsparing, but it's also beautiful. So um, I just really love this director and I love his his sort of unsparing, his slow build, uh, just visual storytelling. I'm, I'm a big fan, uh, as you know, Joe. So um, I, I believe it's already gone from L.A. theaters, though. It, that's that's right. Um, while, while I was ignoring what you were saying, I was looking on the Internet <laughs> and it is playing once a day out in Santa Monica. Uh, OK, <laughs> so it's getting that it's getting that token. It's still in one token theater. You know, we're only getting it uh, next week here in Portland. So another example of that slow, slow, weird release schedule that just happens is forced on to these foreign films like this. But uh, if you like uh, quality cinema, uh, like uh, Loveless is one to, to go for, in my opinion. Um, I can't wait to see it again. But, uh, you know, I, I hope some people find it because uh, it's a great piece of work. It was up for best foreign language film. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would have preferred it over the the film that won, but that's okay. The the one that won was good too. So uh, I'm just 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 putting that shout out there for Loveless, folks. I hope you find it out there. Yeah. So if you like slow, weird releases, keep your eyes open. So just chill to the next episode. Let's wrap up episode 170 of Adjust Your Tracking. Creeping ever so closely to that two hundred uh, that two hundred episode count, Joe. It's very exciting. Very yeah, exciting. Let's 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 uh, you know what I mean. Let's 
<laughs> it's, it's been a slow crawl to 170. Take a knee like Travis Kapanek. Let's do it. Let's 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 be with him. Let's 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 be on that guy's team. Yeah, speaking uh, of Google, you mean Colin Kaepernick? Ah, Christ, man. I yeah. He's who did I refer to? The Uber guy? I don't. I have no I idea. I'm making stuff up at this point. Well, since I can't keep heads or tails over anybody's names anymore, I think it's properly time to uh, to wrap up this episode. You can find adjust your tracking at theplaylist.net. Uh, Click on the podcast tab. You'll find all our episodes. You also find episodes from our other shows on the Playlist Podcast Network. Uh, You can find me tweeting AYT and personal sort of opinions over at Adjust Your Track on Twitter. Uh, People can email us at adjustyourtracking at Mm -hmm. gmail.com. Where else, Joe? Facebook? Are we on there? We're we're all up in the mix. Um, Adjust Your Tracking. Look for the podcast. You can like us, follow us, find out when episodes drop whatnot it's true that's true um so yeah if you do that we'll be very thankful but uh not as thankful as i am to get to talk with you joe even though i didn't get to talk with you in a widescreen format it still was was a very fun time to talk with you joe thanks happy birthday (laughs) oh yeah and happy birthday to you my friend you too (laughs) 